This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be very happy if you'd open those with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9 is where we will be again today. Uh, we're going to, Lord willing, uh, complete Acts chapter 9 today. I'll start reading in just a moment from verse 32 in Acts chapter 9. If you brought your own Bible, then that's great. If you don't have your own with you, there should be a hardback black one like this in a seat back nearby. And if you're looking for Acts chapter 9, verse 32, it's on page 863. 863. <clears throat> This time of year, when we are thinking about Christmas and the coming of the Lord Jesus, there are, especially in the songs that we sing about the Christmas time, uh, about the incarnation, uh, the putting on of flesh of the God of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ, there's a lot of triumphal themes, triumphant themes, uh, a sort of a, a sense of victory that all is complete. And there's, there's a real... Uh, a, a reality that underlies that sense. It is true that all is complete. Uh, Christ has come. Victory is won. But victory is not yet fully enjoyed. It's not yet fully present. We still live in a world that is a post-Genesis 3 world and a pre-glorification world. A pre-final resurrection world. So we live in the already of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the not yet of what all Christ has promised to do. This morning, we're going to read a passage about healing, physical healing in particular. And so I'd like to start off by asking you to think with me for a moment about why people get sick. Why do you get sick? Your friends, your family members, people that you love. Why do people die? And think about this for a moment. Does God promise to heal completely his people from all their diseases? Should we expect to see miraculous healing in our own day? These are some questions that we that I'd like to consider with you as we look at the passage in front of us today. These two different miracles that are performed by one of the apostles and how they serve as the necessary backdrop of what is about to happen in the storyline of Acts. So what I'm going to say at the outset here is that considering what we might about what healing in this passage means or doesn't mean is really kind of a minor point of the passage. The more major point of the passage is that this passage in Acts chapter 9, at the close of Acts chapter 9, sets up sort of a reminder of what is happening in the world at this time and what is about to unfold in Acts chapters 10 and 11. So it's more of a kind of a context passage. But I think for our own benefit, we might uh, focus a bit more on the sub point uh, in this in this passage this morning. What is healing and how are we to understand this? I think we might benefit much from doing that. We want to see, though, that uh, as Luke is unfolding the storyline of Acts, he has he has sort of taken the lens off of uh, Peter and Philip and Stephen, who were these evangelists presenting the gospel up to this point. And, and Luke has focused in on Saul, or who's later to be known the Apostle Paul. Uh, that's been a, a major focus in Acts chapter 9, is this conversion of Saul, who's the arch nemesis of the growth of Christianity in the world up to that point. In just a moment, though, in Acts chapters 10 and 11, uh, Luke is going to bring the focus back off of Saul and put it back on the apostle Peter. And so this is kind of what's happening here in Acts chapter 9. It's sort of a, a resituating of the reader. Don't forget the overall storyline. We focus hard on Saul. There's something big that's going to happen with him in the future. But don't forget the broader story. It's not all about Saul, as a matter of fact. It's about Jesus and the, and the spread, the expansion of his kingdom in the world by the proclamation of of the gospel. Uh, Saul is shipped off uh, a port there in Caesarea and he's headed for Tarsus. And we're told though that in Judea, in Galilee, and in Samaria, this is Acts chapter 9, verse 31, that there was peace 
among all the, the churches. The church, universal, is used there, but it's these churches in these various areas, they experience peace. And how so? Well, it's because Christ brought peace, not by the sword, not by conquering his enemies, by putting them down, but rather by converting his enemy, this impossible sinner, as Saul was. And in this way, Jesus brings peace to his people in the world. And by the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit, we're told in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, uh, the people of God are comforted and Jesus himself builds them up again by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, with all of this in view, the kind of taking the lens off of the, the Apostle Paul, who's now uh, Saul in the storyline, uh, the lens is focused back on Peter. And that's where we're picking it up in our passage today. So Peter is traveling here and there among the saints in Judea. And Luke tells us what happened when Peter encountered two particular saints, which we'll read about in just a moment, one in Lydda and the other in Joppa. But this passage we're looking at today is going to set the scene for what's going to happen in Acts chapters 10 and 11. Let's keep that context in mind as we go. And of course, a much broader context of the whole Bible, as we shall see. But with with that kind of as a a jumbled introduction, I know, uh, let's turn now to our passage for today. Would you mind standing with me as I read from Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 32, and I'll read through verse 43. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. The main point for us that I'd like to draw out of this passage, as I said, I think it's I think it's a sub point. I don't think it's the main point of the passage as intended, but a a good point for us to really consider today is that Jesus has promised complete healing for all those who believe. And the fullness of this promise will be enjoyed in the world to come. Jesus has indeed promised complete healing for all those who believe. And the fullness of this promise will be enjoyed in the world to come. For those who like to take notes, there are five points, some a little longer than the others. Uh, The first one is the messianic promise of healing. Trying to consider in the overall storyline of the Bible... How does healing fit into this storyline? Secondly, the rarity of miracles in history, a brief point here, but just to think about how rare miracles are in redemptive history. Third, healing as a sign of the new covenant, how the new covenant is signaled by healing. Fourth, an anticipation, an anticipated expansion, both an expansion of healing and also an expansion of the kingdom of Christ in the world. And then finally, fifth, what I hope to be some very practical applications for our consideration this morning. Uh, So without further introduction, let's dive straight in to our consideration of this passage. Point number one, the messianic promise of healing. When we look in Acts chapter nine, we're we're coming into uh, an ongoing story in the book of Acts. But we're also coming into an ongoing story from the the whole Bible, the Bible in its entirety. We want to recognize uh, that the Bible presents sickness and death 
as features of the curse. And by the curse, I'm referring back to what happened at the very beginning. Well, just after the very beginning. So back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the Bible teaches us that God is the creator of all things. That he's the sovereign, he's the king, he's the one who speaks uh, the universe into existence, he's the ruler over it. And included in this creation, God makes humanity. In particular, he's making Adam and Eve. And in his making of Adam, this first man, God blesses him and warns him. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, we read, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. God creates his garden, gives him all the provision that he needs. But God sets a parameter, a limit around this one tree. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, here's the warning, you shall surely die. Or the original language there is, is literally, dying you will die. Uh, death will be the result of it. Uh, death ongoingly and death finally. Historically, Christians have understood that all disastrous, all sorrowful, and all malfunctioning realities that we now experience in the world are a result of this one warning and Adam's subsequent sin. So everything that goes wrong in the world, Christians have historically recognized any dysfunction that we see, any malfunction that we see, any bodily decay that we see, sickness and death included, this is a result of what happened right there at the very beginning. When Adam sinned, before that, everything was good, even very good, based on God's own proclamation. After Adam sinned, everything is bad. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 to, to 19, we see that there is enmity. That is strife among uh, relationships. There is pain. There's contrary desire. There's the abuse of authority. There's suffering and failure in work. And there's ultimately death itself that comes. And all of this is, is showing up right as soon as sin enters into creation. So sickness, like dysfunctional relationships and a thousand other grievous pains, is a feature of life under God's curse. Post-Genesis 3, the world is under God's curse. So we get sick. Some of us have chronic illness. All of us know someone whose body doesn't function as it should. And all of this is a result of living in a post-Genesis 3 world. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. Revelation 21 is coming. Where Jesus himself makes all things new. And there'll be no pain, no more sorrow, and no more death. But Revelation 21 is coming. We live in the time between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21. However, throughout that time between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21, God has been signaling to the world that he is a God who's not going to leave things as they are. And as a matter of fact, healing, both from physical sickness and even death itself, is part of what God will do away with. It's part of the curse that God is going to overcome. So, for example, healing was both demonstrated and promised in the Exodus when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. Well, his judgment fell upon the Egyptians, including forms of sickness and death. But God spared his own people from exactly those things. For in Exodus fifteen twenty six, God said, I, the Lord, am your healer. And when God confirmed his covenant with his people, so think Moses and Mount Sinai, with his promises and its warnings, among the promises was this found in Exodus twenty three twenty five, where God said, you shall serve the Lord your God and he, God, will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from you. So right there in the Exodus story, there is the, there is the demonstration and the promise that God is a healing God. And God is one who spares his own people from sickness in some sense. God is the one who is overcoming the curse. In other words, the psalmist in Psalm 103 speaks to this very reality as he looks to God for both healing and redemption. Both physical healing and also being taken out from underneath God's justice and given God's blessings instead. 
So in Psalm 103, verses 1 to 5, we read, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Think about redemption there. There is forgiveness in what God does. Who heals all your diseases. There's physical healing. Who redeems your life from the pit. Takes, takes you out from underneath God's judgment. And gives uh, mercy and love. Who, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So the psalmist in scripture teaches us to look to God as the one who brings both forgiveness and redemption and physical healing. God is a God of healing. One more feature of this before we we move on. We want to recognize that throughout the Old Testament, there are promises of healing that are wrapped up in the ball of everything that the Messiah, this anointed one, this Christ is going to bring when he comes. So there are messianic prophecies throughout the Old Testament that point to a day of both judgment and salvation. And part of the salvation is included in that is physical healing that God is going to bring forth. One example of this is in Malachi chapter four, beginning with verse one. Behold, the prophet says the day is coming, burning like an oven with when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. There's judgment. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. In verse 3, on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So there's this coming day, the prophet Malachi uh, predicts, when there's going to be judgment and salvation. And included in the salvation that God brings to his people, those who fear his name, is healing. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, these sorts of promises are made. Before we move on to point number two, which would be much shorter than this one, I'd like to just quickly ask you, do you ever get sick? And does your sickness, does it remind you that you do live in a post-Genesis 3 world? Does the brokenness of your physical body remind you that you right now live in a world that isn't as it should be? Don't all of us, when we get sick, wish that we weren't sick? Don't we all recognize this is not how it ought to be? Aren't we all at least a little bit frustrated with how things are when we're sick? Oh, we don't like this pain. We don't like this discomfort. We don't like how it's throwing off of our, uh, us off of our normal routine. Doesn't this remind us that it's, this is not the way it ought to be? Sickness is not the way it ought to be. And so, friends, especially for those of you who may be, who may be living with a, a worldview or a perspective that doesn't take into account what the Bible teaches about everything, think about this one aspect of what the Bible teaches. The Bible gives us an answer to the question, why do we get sick? It's because of sin. It's because we live in a post-Genesis 3 world. And the Bible tells us that there's a solution for that. Now, as I'll say in just a moment, it doesn't mean that every time you get sick, it's because you specifically sin in this way or that way. That's not what I'm intending to say. And I'll be clear on that in just a couple of moments. But think about this. Our sickness is a constant reminder that we do, in fact, live in a post-Genesis 3 world. And there is only one solution for our sickness, physical sickness and our spiritual sickness. And that is the one Savior that God has provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. So a simple way that I might just share the gospel briefly with those of us who are in this room who need to be reminded of it every day. When we get sick, we ought to be reminded that this is not the way things ought to be. But this is because of sin. And God has made this very practical reminder a part of our everyday lives so that we will remember that we are not the king of the universe. Uh, We are not the kings and queens of the universe. That we are in desperate need of someone who's bigger and better and grander and more righteous than us to solve this problem that we can't solve. And indeed, he has given us the solution to the problem of our sickness, both our physical sickness and our spiritual sickness. We are sinners and Jesus is not. We are not righteous and Jesus is. But he's the one who has suffered every bit of the curse that God has for sinners in order that those of us who are guilty can go free. When we get sick, may we be reminded of our own weakness and need for a savior and may we cling all the more tightly to the Christ God has provided for us. Point number two, the rarity of miracles in history. Really briefly, I just want to remind you of something that you probably already know, but you haven't really thought much about. Some of us, at least. 
There are three in the unfolding storyline of the Bible, three major miraculous eras of redemptive history. That is three times periods in which miracles happen kind of a lot. And then outside of those times, they almost never happen or don't. Those three times are number one, Moses and the establishment of the old covenant. So think again, Moses and Mount Sinai, there's this time when God uses Moses as the deliverer of his people, bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And God gives his divine covenant to his people from Mount Sinai. Surrounding this major event in the unfolding of of the storyline of biblical history, there are miracles that are happening all over the place in correlation to God's using Moses and delivering his law to his people. Uh, But before that, it's really kind of sporadic where God speaks to this person or that person. God does a, a miracle here or there. They're very rare. And they're happening maybe one person in a whole generation of people. Uh, so think Noah. Well, God speaks directly to Noah about building an ark in order to survive God's judgment. But what's one guy as compared to everybody else in all the world at that time who don't hear peep out of God, who don't see one miracle out of God except the one miracle that destroys life as they knew it. So there's this moment, Moses and the delivering of God's law, the old covenant. There's Elijah and Elisha. That's the second one. So with Elijah and Elisha, these are the quintessential prophets. So God speaks through his prophets. And God, of course, sometimes does miracles by and through or around his prophets in order to validate their office as a prophet. But Elijah and Elisha are much more sort of these miraculous characters than any other prophet that we find in the, the unfolding of uh, all the, this office throughout the Old Testament. And it's in their lives that God uh, has these various miracles happen more often, much more often than anywhere else in any other prophet. And the third and last one is Jesus and the apostles. So at the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he's being born, there is the opening up of the skies where angels appear and sing his praises. But that doesn't happen every Tuesday. That happens this one time. In all of human history, it's a very rare event. So too, throughout Jesus' life, he performs miracles, once again, showing that God is doing something big. And what is it that God did big during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry and the apostles? Well, it's the establishing of the new covenant. It's the delivery of the gospel. It's the making clear of what God has been promising all along. But indeed, it is through the person and work of Jesus Christ that he has established his people and his kingdom. So these three major eras throughout redemptive history are the only times when miracles are aplenty. Outside of that, miracles are incredibly rare. Non-existent in in many uh, occurrences. So miracles then, especially the miracle of healing, it's a sign that something big is happening. So when we see in our passage, as we're, we're getting to here in just a second... When we see in Acts chapter 9, these healings happening, or when when we're reading through the Gospels and we see Jesus performing miracles of healing, we shouldn't shouldn't automatically start trying to make uh, applications to our own lives about what healing might mean in our own day before we understand what does healing mean in the context of everything that God has been doing in all the Bible. What happens when someone is healed? Well, this means God is doing something big. So we ought to be asking ourselves, what? What big thing is God doing? And that leads us into point number three, healing as a sign of the new covenant. Now we're getting especially in to Acts chapter nine, our passage for today. Uh, Let's consider these two signs of healing in our passage. The first is Peter, the apostle, healing a paralyzed man, a man named Aeneas. Uh, We see in verses 32 and 33 that Aeneas is not explicitly called a saint, but The implication is that he was among the saints there in Lydda when Peter found him. Uh, So I'm I'm looking at verses 32 and 33, and I'm I'm seeing, uh, based on the context, it looks like that Aeneas is among the saints that Peter is traveling around, and this is where he finds Aeneas. In verse 33, we learn that Aeneas has been bedridden for eight years. This was no minor sickness. Uh, He was a paralyzed man and bedridden for eight whole years. I can't even imagine such a reality in my own life. We learn in verse 34 that when Peter encounters him and proclaims healing to him, that his healing wasn't gradual. It wasn't as though he went to the doctor and found some great medicine by which God provides wonderful healing in our own day, of course. 
But this isn't the kind of healing we're talking about. This is miraculous, instantaneous, immediate healing. Verse 34. Immediately, Luke tells us, he was healed. Verse 34 also teaches us that it's not Peter uh, who's doing the healing. Peter is crystal clear that it is Jesus Christ who heals you, is what he says to Aeneas. Well, that's the encounter there with Aeneas. Let's consider this second one. This one with Tabitha or Dorcas, where Peter, Peter here heals her. This lady who wasn't merely sick, but one who had died. In verse 36, we're told clearly that Tabitha was named as a disciple, a Christian, a brother in Christ. She is full of good works and acts of charity. She left a reputation behind her that was a quality one. In verse 37, we learn that she died of some unspecified illness. We're not told what it was, but it did result in her death. And we're also told that in in the way that was common in that day, her body was prepared for burial. We're told also that the disciples in verse 38 in Joppa, they sent messengers to Lydda where they heard Peter was. And they urged Peter to come to them without delay. It appears they knew that that with the apostles, there was this this healing happening. And they thought maybe there could be something done for their sister in Christ. In verse 40, uh, we see that when Peter came to Tabitha, that there were mourners there with her. And understandably so. Their, Their friend, their sister, their loved one had died. But, verse 40, Peter put them all outside and he knelt down and prayed. Now, again, like with the first healing, Peter kneeling down and praying here is a clear recognition that it's not Peter who has the power to heal. It's God. It's Christ. He's the one who's doing the healing. And that's precisely why Peter is praying. And just with Aeneas, Tabitha was immediately healed in verse 40 when Peter addressed her. So again, these are miraculous healings. These are not gradual healings where the body gets well over time. These are instantaneous, miraculous healings where with divine authority, someone who speaks with the authority of Christ tells someone whose body is not well, even dead, to be well. And it happens. There's a common result in both of these healings, both in verse 35 and verse 42, We see that those who saw or knew about these miraculous healings, that they turned to the Lord in verse 35, or they believed in the Lord, verse 42. But what is it that they believed about the Lord? And what does it mean that they turned to him? Well, this this brings us back to the point that I tried to kind of set us up with, which was that God has been promising that healing is what the Messiah is going to do. So the sign of healing taking place right in front of them points out the Messiah is at work among you. And so what does it mean that they believed the Lord or turned to him? Other than that they believed that Jesus, the Messiah, had come. And these are Jesus' spokesmen. Peter is Jesus' spokesman. Peter is Jesus' man. All the Christians up to this point in the unfolding of the storyline of Acts, with with the exception of the Ethiopian official uh, being the only obvious one, Uh, are are Jewish converts. So again, this sign of healing is a testimony to them that what God says about the Messiah to come all throughout the Old Testament is true of Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And it's very interesting when you compare the healings, the two in particular that Luke points out with Peter here. Uh, Obviously, it seems to me it's obvious that there were other healings that took place, but Luke specifically records these two. Uh, that these ones parallel very closely with healings that happened with Elijah and Elisha and also in the ministry of Jesus himself. So it's as though what Luke is telling the reader and telling the observer is that these are those who are in keeping with the way God has been unfolding his revelation all along. This is what God does. Also, when we look at these healings and we think about how God is, is... Uh, revealing something about himself and something about the unfolding of the storyline of Acts and all of Scripture, we want to remember, keep in mind, that in the Gospels, the Gospel of John, for example, where there are so many healings recorded, there is the constant, repeated warning to not focus too much 
on the miraculous sign and not enough on the savior to which the sign points. So think about the gospel of John at the end of John chapter two. John tells us that after Jesus performed a miraculous sign, that there were many who believed in him, but that Jesus, for his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. The idea is is that Jesus knew that their belief was only circumstantial. Keep on doing those miracles, Jesus, and we'll believe in you. Keep on doing this healing. Keep on performing these, these wonders. You keep on doing that thing and we'll keep on believing in you. But John warns the reader that this is false belief. This isn't true belief. Rather, we are to have true belief. So what we want to focus on is not so much merely the healing that we see in Acts chapter uh, chapter 9, verses 32 to 43. But what sign is this indicating? Where is this sign pointing? And of course, it's pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And I want to argue in point number four, an anticipated expansion. The sign of healing is not meant to merely focus on temporary healing. Temporary healing is great. Uh, When we are sick, we sometimes can feel really horrible in the midst of our sickness. And then when we feel better, we are so glad we feel better. We're glad for the temporary healing. Even though we know there's coming a day when we're going to get sick again. We're glad for the temporary healing. But what would be even better than that is to know that we're never going to get sick again. That's the better reality. Implicit, implied in these signs of healing is that anticipated expansion that there indeed is coming a day when those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are of the Messiah's kingdom, will never get sick again. That's the ultimate point of these temporary healings. So think about it with me for a moment. Lazarus, Jesus' friend, who dies. And Jesus brings back to life, calling out from him, uh, to him from the grave. Jesus tells him to get out of the grave and to come out, and he comes out. But Lazarus ultimately died again. Tabitha, Peter raised from death to life. But Tabitha died again. If the point of these temporary healings is merely the temporary healing, that people can come back to life for a temporary period, well, then it's, it's sort of anticlimactic. It's like, well, can you do that again? Can you bring them back to life again and again and again? Then it's a real, then it's something that, that is climactic. Then it is it's something that's spectacular because it's something that lasts. It doesn't get old. It doesn't wear out. But Lazarus and Tabitha and the loved ones that we know who are right now with the Lord, they are all waiting for a greater healing, a more permanent resurrection. And this is what the sign of healing points to as an aspect of what the Messiah has done and is doing. Complete and perfect healing is indeed a feature of all that the Messiah has provided. But it's not in full as of yet. So think about the way, if we, if we think about how we talk about salvation, we think about uh, the way we say, I have been saved. We speak of it in, a, in the past tense. And by that, we mean that God has, has saved our soul, that God has regenerated us, brought spiritual life from death, that God has justified us, that he has, he has declared that we are righteous before him and that we're no longer sinful, uh, that we are no longer underneath the, the shame and guilt of our sin, but that Christ has covered us with his righteousness. And those are true realities for the Christian at this very moment. But we also speak with, with truth when we say, I am being saved. Right now, God is at work in all Christians bringing about that which he has promised to do. That is, he is bringing about sanctification, holiness in our lives. In Romans chapter uh, 8, verses 28 and 29, the Bible reminds us that God's purpose in our lives is to conform us, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, to the image of his son, to make us like Jesus. And so God is about that work presently. God is saving us presently. And we also speak with truth when we talk about our salvation as something that is future tense. I will be saved. Praise God, there is coming a day when I will enjoy the fullness of all that God has promised in salvation. When death will be no more. When I will not only be relieved from the power of sin, the dominance of sin over my life, but the very presence of sin will be gone from me. Imagine that. 
when I'll no longer do anything with, on my best day, mixed desires. Where I do actually want righteousness, but man, I still do want sin. There's coming a day when that desire for sin will be utterly gone. Where I will actually love the Lord God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul and all my strength. But that's not today. That's something that is yet to come. And so salvation as a whole, everything that's promised in salvation is a present reality for Christians. But there's also the fullness of it, the completion of it, the consummation of it that is not yet. So think about the way that Peter speaks of it in his letter. First Peter chapter two, verses 24 and 25. The apostle Peter says to Christians that he, Jesus himself, bore our sins on in his body on the tree. So think about past tense. Jesus did die with our sin on him so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And these are present realities in the life of a Christian dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Then also he speaks in the past tense when he says, by his, Jesus, wounds, you, Christians, have been healed. He speaks of that in the past tense sense. But is that healing something that Christians fully enjoy as of yet? Well, no, we still get sick and Christians still die. Are Christians fully righteous both both declared so before God and also practically in their lives today? No, but one day we will be. And so the Bible speaks of all of the blessings of salvation, including physical healing, as something that is present, but is not yet fully enjoyed. Complete physical healing, though, as well as all other features of salvation, are something that we now possess and will fully enjoy. Those of us who are Christians. Now, uh, what I said at the very beginning of all this, uh, this whole sermon was that the primary point of Acts chapters, uh, chapter 9, verses uh, 32 to 43, is something that is bigger than mere physical healing. And I bet it's something that most of us would probably overlook. I know I did when I first started considering this passage. Look quick, quickly before I get to the practical applications of what I've been talking about today. Uh, one last uh, sub point in point number four is this most profound aspect of our passage in verse 43. Think about Moses, uh, sorry, think about Peter, who is a Mosaic covenantal Jew. He is a Jewish man who's lived underneath the Mosaic covenantal law for his whole lifetime. His life experience has been living under what God's code is for Old Testament Israel. There is an explicit command in the Old Testament code that you are not to touch anything dead. And if you touch something that's dead, you become defiled. You become unclean. You become unwelcome in God's presence. Certain times when you had to touch something that was dead, well, there were ceremonial washings that you had to do, perform, in order to kind of make it all good and to be be able to come back in again. Think about the way that we're told who it is that Peter stays with in Acts chapter 9, verse 43. Who is it? That Peter, this lifelong Mosaic covenantal Jew, who is it that he stays with? It's someone named Simon who is a tanner. A tanner, not his last name, but his vocation. It's his job. And what does a tanner do? Well, a tanner touches dead things. A tanner handles the skin of dead animals and makes it useful for all sorts of tasks. Implicit in this this sort of shot that we would miss if we weren't paying attention is that Peter, a Mosaic covenantal Jew, is hanging out with someone whose vocation it is, whose everyday experience is to touch dead things. And this is an anticipation of a much greater expansion of those who are unclean, those who are outside of the old covenant, being welcomed into the new, as we shall see in Acts chapters 10 and 11. We'll get more to that in the weeks to come, but let's quickly consider some practical applications in point number five for our message today about specifically uh, thinking about this this healing and what does it mean and how should we think about it in the unfolding of the storyline of the Bible? What are some practical questions we might answer? I'd like to do that with you here now. So some practical applications. The first question I'd like to ask is, uh, why do people get sick and why do they die? Well, again, as we've said before, it is because of sin, not because of your sin explicitly, 
and not because of your mom or dad's sin explicitly, but because of sin generally, both our own and our, our first dad. Because Adam sinned, he's messed it up for everyone. We live in a world that is cursed by sin. So why do people get sick? Why are there birth defects? Why is there uh, chronic illness? Why are there severe diseases? Why are there bodily mal- malfunctions? It's because of sin. We see around us all sorts of dysfunction that constantly remind us, reminds us that we live in a post-Genesis 3 world and physical sickness is one of those reminders. Another question we might ask and try to answer from our passage this morning, thinking about it and thinking it through, is does God promise to heal his people from all their diseases? Does God promise to heal his people from all of their diseases? You bet he does. You bet he does. But not yet. It seems to me that those who want to argue for the necessity that God would heal his people right now, that all you have to do is have enough faith or pray the right way or do these right things and God will heal you today. It seems to me that those folks have what Christians would sometimes call an over-realized eschatology. Those are big words to simply say they're trying to think, to, to, to yank all the stuff that is a reality for Christians and bring it into the right now. Uh, I want to have my final destination today. I want to have my best life right now. And that's just not something the Bible promises us. The Bible promises us a great life, but not all right this second. We still live in the between time. And this is true, not just with the New Testament proclamation, but with the old as well. That there is the promise that God will indeed heal all of our diseases, that all of our wounds are indeed healed. And this is something that the Messiah does and will do. He does it and he will do it. One of my favorite Christian uh, Christmas songs is Joy to the World, which is not just a Christmas song, by the way. You know, those Christmas songs are not just Christmas songs. They're Christian songs. They're New Covenant songs. They're songs we could sing all year round and they would still be true. But one of my favorite Christmas songs is Joy to the World because it speaks of this very reality, like a lot of Christmas songs do. But think about the the words of joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. It's the the reality, the present reality that Christ is king and urging the world to receive him as such. And yet it's not obviously so in every aspect of all that we see around us. The urging is let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And then verse 3 which sometimes people sadly leave out, uh, is it says this, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. This is the, this is the curse that was spoken of in Genesis 3. The author of this song is tapping back into the whole storyline of the Bible saying, way back there in Genesis 3, there was the entrance of God's curse into the world. And now when Christ comes, it's the rolling back. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So as far as the curse has gone out into the world, so too the blessings of God through the Messiah, through the Lord Jesus Christ flow. And this is the promise of the new covenant. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the promise of what God has done and is doing in real time is that God is making his blessings flow through the Lord Jesus Christ by the proclamation of the gospel in the conversion of sinners, in the experience of presently people living in right relationship with the Father through the Holy Spirit on the basis of the work of the Son. These are present realities, but it's not seen in every aspect everywhere right this second. There's still still aspects of the thorny ground among us. There's still death and sickness. And so we look forward to that day when indeed, as far as the curse is found, the blessings do flow. A third question, should we expect to see miraculous healings today? Well, let me, let me ask you like this. Are the miracles in the Bible ever expected? Aren't they always unexpected? Isn't that kind of the point of a miraculous occurrence is that it's an unexpected thing? It happens when no one is expecting it. Then the, the miracle happens. And it's precisely in those concentrated accounts of miracles that the reader or the observer is tipped off that God is doing something big. God is revealing something big. Remember Moses in the old covenant, 
Elijah and Elisha, the prophetic office, Jesus and the apostles, these big moments, that's where God is doing something spectacular. So then if you do expect to see frequent miraculous healings in in our own day, well, then my question would just be to you, uh, what is it that God is unfolding new in his revelation? What new revelation is God bringing about today? What unfolding of the storyline of scripture has, has yet to be told? Isn't our expectation as Christians that Jesus is going to come? That he's going to break, as the Bible declares, that eastern sky and he's going to raise to life all those who are in him? This is what we await. What else has the Bible not told us? That miracles are going to be a, a sign that we should expect that God is revealing something new. A fourth question we might ask then on the heels of that one is, should we pray for healing? For ourselves or for our loved ones? Should we pray for healing today? And of course, of course is the answer to that question. The Bible teaches us to pray for all sorts of things, including healing. So James chapter 5, verses 13 to 16 says, Is anyone suffering? Anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So should we pray for healing today? Of course we should. Of course we should pray for healing today. But we shouldn't make healing the only thing we pray for, even for those who are sick. We shouldn't only pray for healing even for those who are sick. Because we should pray and we should live remembering that the God of the universe is sovereign even over our sickness. And sometimes God uses the very sickness we're now experiencing the very pains and ailments we're right now going through, the progressive decay of our body over the span of our lifetime to remind us of some really important things. Sometimes he uses those circumstances to teach us stuff. So sickness and disease and bodily malfunctions of all sorts, they teach us that we are weaker than we might imagine otherwise. We're prone, maybe, maybe you're like me, and prone to think that you're invincible. But sickness and pain reminds us that that's not true. Sickness reminds us that this life in this world is short, that it doesn't last for forever. Sickness tends to focus us on more important things and sometimes helps us to better prioritize our time and our attention. When we're sick, if we're really sick and we get better, uh, don't, we, don't we have at least for a short time uh, this sort of a, a reprioritization of how we used, used our time before? Because we're reminded, oh yeah, I remember those things I can't do, those simple things whenever I'm sick. Sometimes severe sickness can even make us loosen our grip on this fleeting world and begin to embrace with joy the world that is to come. We can become exhausted with this present world and long to leave it behind. Some of us have, 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 have had loved ones that we've watched on their deathbeds come to grips with that. And they themselves have longed to leave that body of pain and sickness. So, of course, we should pray for healing. But we shouldn't only pray for healing. Fifth and finally, how should this passage provoke us to hope and anticipation in our own day? Well, we should see that God has been working out this story of redemption. This, these amazing promises from the very beginning. That God has been telling one miraculous beautiful and spectacular story across the entirety of scripture. And he's continuing the story in Acts chapter nine. This story is one that ends with perfect and complete healing of every disease and perfect peace on earth and perfect righteousness among humanity and perfect unity and intimacy between God and his people. And as we'll sing in just a few moments, blessings all and 10,000 beside. This story is one that is full of blessings. And all of them come together in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are many places in the Bible that we might turn to see all of the blessings of the gospel put together and set in our laps as a beautiful, completed whole. And throughout the Old Testament, we look to the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Malachi, the prophet Jeremiah, who speaks of this coming day when the branch is going to spring up for David who executes justice and righteousness in the land. 
is one who brings forth healing for his people. Brothers and sisters, these promises of blessing, they include complete healing and they are for everyone who turns from sin and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, who trusts in that righteous branch, who now reigns in justice and in righteousness. Those days are yet to come and they are here now. But we live in that time that is still under the curse of God, trusting in his goodness to bring to completion everything that he's promised. So what will we do? Will we uh, waller in misery, thinking about all the ways that things are not as they ought to be, including our sickness, including our pain, including our discomfort? Or will we let such things be a reminder that we are to trust God who has the ability to heal us now, but who ultimately will heal us from all of our diseases? We cling to that Messiah that he's provided for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray that we'll do just that. Would you bow with me and let's pray again? We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.